Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 491. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Year of Music author interview series, our guest today is Beatles biographer extraordinaire Ken Womack. Ken Womack has written numerous highly acclaimed books about the Beatles and will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates program via Zoom December 2nd. More details are available at the websites that we will have listed in the show notes. In today's conversation, which I think you are going to love, music historian Kenneth Womack traces the story behind Double Fantasy, John Lennon's remarkable 1980 comeback album with wife Yoko Ono. Along the way, Womack reads from his forthcoming book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life, and he'll explore with us the powerful, life-affirming story of the former Beatles renaissance after five years of self-imposed retirement. Lennon's final, pivotal year would climax in several moments of creative triumph as he rediscovered his artistic self in dramatic fashion. In thinking about Lennon, Womack shows how the gifted songwriter and musician lived rather than how he died much too soon. It was late December 1979 snowfall had finally descended upon the city with nearly four inches of the white stuff blanketing the Upper West Side, where John Lennon, 39-year-old erstwhile leader of the Beatles, lay in wait. He had been a virtual recluse since an April 1975 television appearance in which an acoustic guitar playing Lennon performed Imagine. A few months later, his wife Yoko Ono had given birth to the couple's first child, Sean, on John's 35th birthday. And then, he had all but disappeared from public life. In truth, John had been exhausted by his multi-year legal fight to stay in the United States, finally earning his much-coveted green card in 1976. During that same period, he and Yoko had been reunited after John concluded his debaucherous Lost Weekend on the West Coast with hard-drinking Harry Nielsen, former bandmate Ringo Starr, The Who's Keith Moon, and John's girlfriend, Mae Pang. But by the time the winter of 1979 made its belated appearance, John had been largely absent from the headlines, save for a January 1977 appearance at President Jimmy Carter's inaugural eve gala. At this point, he hadn't released a studio album since 1975's Rock and Roll LP, which was chock full of the old standards that set his heart ablaze, including the likes of Gene Vincent's Bebop Alula, Benny King's Stand My Me, and Buddy Holly's Peggy Sue. After rock and roll hit the record stores, notching a top 10 showing in the Billboard charts, John's solitary output had come in the form of a Greatest Hits LP. A compilation of John's solo singles releases, Shaved Fish, had been released only a few weeks after Sean's birth and the resolution of John's immigration battle. Tellingly, the album's liner notes featured a conspicuous message from Dr. Winston O'Boogie, John's comic gnome de musique. A conspiracy of silence speaks louder than words, he wrote. If John had left a clue directing listeners to his coming exile, this was surely it. Having opted not to sign a new deal with the label that had been his recording home since 1962, John was left for the first time since the onset of his professional life without the necessity of prepping a new release for the pop music marketplace. And John's absence from the music scene would prevail for much of the late 1970s, only to be interrupted by, of all things, a newspaper ad. 
In May 1979, he briefly suspended his self-imposed retirement with a full-page message in the New York Times. Signed as a love letter from John and Yoko to people who ask us what, when, and why, the couple implored the world to understand our silence as a silence of love and not of indifference. Remember, we are writing in the sky instead of on paper. That's our song. Lift your eyes and look up in the sky. There's our message. That, of course, is our guest today, author Ken Womack, reading from his new book, John Lennon, The Last Days in the Life, drawing on new interviews. John Lennon 1980 is an informative, engaging, and often deeply moving portrayal of the final chapter in John Lennon's remarkable life. It isn't a story about how the gifted songwriter and musician died, but rather about how he lived. Our Not Old Better Show audience loves John Lennon and the Beatles, and you'll love this Smithsonian Associates presentation by Ken Womack, but we have him here today. So please join me in welcoming, via internet phone, Beatles author Ken Womack. Dr. Ken Womack, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much. What a pleasure it is to talk to you. I am a huge fan. I've got the book right here in my hands, the title of which is John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life. We're going to talk about that, but I, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation and maybe how you're going to be using Zoom, <laughs> we're all into Zoom these days, to highlight John Lennon's kind of last days of his life. You bet. And I'm going to concentrate on the music in my Smithsonian talk. Uh, and I, I've really become accustomed to Zoom, which I guess we have to be, right, at least at this point. <laughs> and uh, I, I will have um, lots of special effects. I like to help keep people interested and excited. Um, some images they haven't seen before. But different kinds of ways of drawing folks into the great story of those songs that he recorded uh, in his last year. And the different kinds of objects that help to excite him. He was a big uh, believer in using found objects uh, as a poetic device, much like our great poets, right? And um, in the case of my talk, I do spend uh, a good amount of time showing folks those objects and helping them understand how they drew John into the act of composition. So it's, it's very, uh, I suppose, multimedia with lots of interactivity and uh, video, audio, and of course, most importantly, that great music. Thank you for that. And and it, this, this presentation, I think, is just going to be wonderful. I know our audience is going to be super excited. I personally, I'm hoping that we're going to, you know, we're going to hear Watching the Wheels. We're going to hear Woman. We're going to hear Yoko on, on Walking on Thin Ice. Some of that music is just so wonderful. And the book talks about that so much. It, it really is an excellent book. John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life. You really focused on Lennon's renewal, what you refer to as kind of his renewal in the in the double fantasy album that he created uh, with Yoko Ono. And so what's so special about that period? And and what does the word renewal mean there? And um, why is Double Fantasy so special and unique in terms of, of the music? Well, I think, at least in terms of John's story, it has a particular impact, of course, because it comes at the tail end of what was what is still a giant of a life, right? You know, my way into that story was to tell uh, to share the narrative of this um, this amazing person um, who, unbeknownst of them, of course, is in this twilight. Uh, and he, uh, by renewal, I mean, he draws himself together in, in a very contentious, competitive 
music world uh, that he had chosen to leave for lots of great reasons, exhausted by his immigration fight and so many more of the challenges that he'd experienced in the early 1970s and even still getting over, I would imagine, his Beatle years. So when I say renewal, he really has to find his way back to music, and he spends a good amount of time trying out different genres. At one point, he begins making tape-recorded episodes of what he calls mind movies. He thinks that maybe is the direction, and they're really funny, uh, but, you know, they're not amazing like his the greatest works of musical art that he created he also tries to write um his story with yoko called the ballad of john and yoko at one point he tries to write it as a text then he decides that he'll try it as a musical um he doesn't get as far at least with our current research as to create a libretto the only way this can be confirmed is, is ultimately for yoko to show it to us I don't believe he got that far, but what he did instead, and this is a smart way to approach a musical, is he attempted to begin writing different kinds of songs. And so he had several of them that he was working on, um, and they're just – they're lovely. It's hard to figure out what they have to do with John and Yoko at times, but they are these just really quirky, fun songs. But he doesn't really stay with that project either. He tries an audio diary at one point. Um, and even while he's making his first and only entry, I believe he's already sort of casting doubt on whether or not he wants to to do that sort of thing. And of course, it all leads back to the music, which he knows or he's learning again that he has real power uh, in that format, in that genre. And so it, that, that's a kind of renewal, right? He tests out these different kinds of artistic spaces only to come back to the one that he knows so well and that it served him well. And it's during this time that he's, he's at the Dakota, the infamous apartment building that's just etched in all of our minds as, as, uh, as almost an icon there in that, in that time period, that building was unique, I suppose, maybe is, is a word for it. It, it didn't have the world's greatest security. Uh, Paul McCartney would show up maybe unannounced at Lennon's front door and Lennon would have visitors. You you write about um, the two teenagers that showed up seeking autographs from from Lennon and, and he's he's just kind of there. So he wasn't really reclusive. He was working on his music. He was really living kind of a personal life. Is that a good way of putting his time period during this during this moment? I think that makes sense. You know, he wasn't able to travel before um, he gets his immigration sorted out. So that's a big deal for him when he's able uh, to travel. They they take, I believe, three trips to Japan where they spend extended time there. That's wonderful for him. He has an infant, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, which, of course, brings its own special joys and challenges. The problem I, I keep coming into when I think about this period of his life is, you know, when you look at it, it doesn't look like he's a recluse or he's hidden away. But at the same time, he's the one who kept saying that he was uh, reclusive and he would <laughs> compare himself. And he did this on multiple occasions to Howard Hughes, uh, who, of course, I believe it was in 1976, you know, had rushed back to the United States. I think he died in, in my hometown of Houston, Texas. <laughs> and, um, it, you know, created this kind of international sensation, which is probably what brought him into John's thinking. He must have felt at a certain level like he was a a recluse, even though he wasn't homebound or anything like that. So 
Uh, we can find a lot of marvelous instances of these kind of dichotomies in his thinking. Um, it must have felt reclusive in comparison to his Beatle days or, you know, the early 1970s, right? <laughs> when, uh, you know, he was essentially a jet setter. Right. The book is is amazing. There's so much to talk to you about. Again, the title is John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life by Kenneth Womack. We're with Dr. Kenneth Womack today. We're talking a little bit about his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation titled Lennon, Ono, and the Making of Double Fantasy. Dr. Womack, Lennon in the book, and, and this is why the book is, is just so wonderful, in, in my opinion, it's such a fulsome look at this man who is a very complicated person. We don't get that so much in other books. He really takes exception with fans and media and even popular musicians and and then his own Beatle bandmates. And and so I wonder, is Lennon proud of the music that he created with the Beatles? John would speak just glowingly and movingly about uh, the other Beatles and, and what they did. There is no doubt, though, that he was probably ambivalent at times. Um, this is not an easy period. Uh, their finances are in a state of flux. In January 1976, the, I guess what we'd call the EMI in capital letters and, and Apple mm -hmm. <laughs> contract uh, dissolves. And, uh, you know, even though they weren't a working band together, you know, in the, the last seven years of that contract or six and a half, whatever it comes to, even though they weren't a working band, it gave them a sense of structure. And so, you know, the money made a certain kind of sense. But at that point, things were thrown into a kind of a new kind of disarray. And so there were times when being a former Beatle was probably very frustrating and you were thinking of having to think about these kinds of things uh, that normally might have been handled by rote and also watching and being asked to affirm the release of new compilations, you know, at regular intervals like love songs and rock and roll music mm -hmm. and all these other compilations that were coming out. There were the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl. It must have given him and the others a certain <laughs> level of uh, frustration at times. You know, what we do know is there was never any moving on from being a Beatle, right? Mm -hmm. It's never going to be you know, that phrase that became popularized, and we still use it today, but that phrase that became popularized in the 1970s, the ex-Beatles, the former Beatles, there really was no such thing, right? You were you were an alum of that particular very small academy forever. The book just takes us right back to that time. And uh, the music, of course, from Double Fantasy does as well. I love the photographs in the book. And um I imagine you might have a favorite, and and I'd sure be interested in hearing it. My my favorite, I suppose, is the the cover from the Rolling Stone magazine of Lennon and Oko. Lennon's almost fetal like there, lying in Oko's arms. I, I really love that image. I wonder if you'd tell us the story behind that image and why you picked it for for the book, because it 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 just it brings back so many memories for me as a Rolling Stone magazine subscriber and reader for many many years. Sure, it was such a great idea, you know, and of course it ensured that Yoko would be on the cover too, which was important to John uh, because he knew, you know, how the press operated and, you know, that they would want a John shot. 
it's a marvelous story because they had such a busy last day together. You know, I mean, he gets up early. He get they go have uh, breakfast at Cafe La Fortuna. John gets knowing Annie Leibovitz is coming over that later that morning. He goes and gets a very slight trim uh, at vis-a-vis his salon down the street. And she comes over from her apartment. She was living at that time in the Dakota and um, sets up the shoot. Now, they had taken photos a few days earlier. Uh, and um, you can tell the difference because John's hair is just a little bit shaggier in those photos. He looks like John Lennon back in Hamburg, you know, just a little older. Um, but but it's the spitting image. He's got this sort of black uh, bomber jacket that he got at the Gap. He's got the collar up in some of the photos. But the uh, the photo that was the cover art for for Rolling Stones was really the brainchild of um, of Annie Leibovitz, who figured if they did something kind of salacious, they'll get the cover uh, for both of them. And Yoko didn't feel like disrobing, so it's even better because, you know, you have this kind of inverted gender when, you know, women are so often sexualized and, and it's John who's naked, which was wonderful. Um, and of course, after she took it, he's, he saw the Polaroids and he said, ah, you've captured our relationship perfectly. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I look at that photo and I remember getting it when it arrived, uh, at my home, uh, you know, in the month after he died and, and just being mesmerized by it. And of course, totally sad. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a guy who's never, never grows old. Mm-hmm. It, it also makes me sad because that photo, imagine for a moment, as we've, you've probably done many times, John Lennon's not murdered. Double fantasy, still a little sluggish. That cover would have been just the stir in the pot, mm-hmm. right? It would have been a pot boiler. It would have, there would have been magazines, stands, I think there were anyway, that, you know, would have put it in a brown paper bag and it would have been. It would have been its own story. You know, there they go again, John and Yoko. And that if, if that didn't get it to number one, then certainly an ensuing, you know, tour. Uh, mm. His first since 1966 would have been a big story. So I look at it with sadness because it it also reminds me that we could never see it. Only really Annie Leibovitz got to see it and not think of murder. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She's really kind of the only one who saw it in its pure, unvarnished, um, untempered form by the terrible news that was going to come late that night. Yes, I, I just I agree with you because there's just this there's this vulnerability to Lennon there, and then as we see the image after the fact, we realize just how vulnerable he was. But he was such a gifted songwriter and such a gifted musician. The book is wonderful because it's such a um, a moving portrayal of of this final chapter in, in in his life, and it's more about how he lived than than how he died. So, Dr. Kenneth Womack, what a pleasure it's been to talk to you. I, I could talk to you for a long time, but I, I know you're you're very busy. We're looking forward to seeing you at the upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. But um, thanks so much for your time today, and uh, good luck with this book. I, it's going to be huge. Well, thanks. It's been a great pleasure, and and thank you for connecting with the the aspect that I think is most important. This is not a true crime book, right? It's not mm-hmm. it's not a book about what happens in that archway. It's it's about a guy picking himself up and really becoming confident again. And that's a story I think we can all connect with.
Well said. Thank you, sir. Good to talk to you, Dr. Womack. And um, gosh, as you write more about the Beatles, please consider this uh, one of your stops along the way because we'd love to have you back. Oh, well, thanks so much. You can count on it. Thanks, Dr. Womack. My thanks to Beatles biographer Ken Womack, author of the new book, John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life. Ken Womack will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates December 2nd via Zoom. More details are available in the show notes. My thanks as well to the fine folks at Smithsonian Associates who always help so much with the show. And of course, my thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better show audience. Be safe, everyone. Practice smart social distancing and talk about better. The Not Old Better show. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>